0: rock Rockheads, get your mojo working and listen up it's time for another stellar episode of .NET rocks the internet audio talk show for dotnet developers with carl franklin and richard campbell this is lawrence ryan announcing show number 449 with guests nicholas Gustafson and josh phillips recorded live tuesday may 26th 2009 .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering .NET Nuke video training with Chris Hammond from Engage Software on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com and by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who wants to give you some practical advice, floss, often, I mean it, Carl Franklin! Gotta get Thank you very much, and
1: welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl and Richard here for your .NET listening pleasure. We'll be with you for the next hour.
2: So, what's up, Mr. Campbell? Ah, well, the good news is I finally moved back into my house, right? It's all about the house. It is all about the house. That and the MP3 doorbell. Now, you, your doorbell plays MP3, uh, right.
1: and do you have, like, a dog barking or something?
2: I, no, because I have a dog, so I don't really need that one. But I my favorite one right now is the one where you push the doorbell, and it makes it sound like you're knocking on a door. Oh, that's awesome. Because I think that's just hours of fun. I
1: think what would be good was the would
2: be the Munsters uh, door knocker, the goosh goosh guz. Yeah, I think you could get pretty weird with doorbells, I'm and I'm, I'm going to try them all on. How about the Adams Family?
1: <laughs>
2: yeah, There's a good one. <laughs>
1: All right, let's get into Better Know Framework.
3: All
1: right. And Better Know Framework is this little piece that I do in the show where I shine a little spotlight on a dark and dingy corner of the .NET Framework, and I've been on WPF kick for a long time, and why stop now? Because there's so much (laughs) to learn in WPF. There's always more. And now the Visual Studio 2010 is here, at least in beta form. Uh, You know, people are taking a harder look at WPF because the tools have gotten better, Today I'm going to talk about system.windows.media.visualtreehelper and uh, when I asked Brian Noyes, why is visual tree helper which l- helps you navigate nodes in a visual tree basically how it helps you find uh, walk up and down the visual tree to locate elements xaml elements um, when I asked him why this is in system windows Media, he says god knows <laughs> 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 he should be in Windows, But then again, he doesn't work for Microsoft And there may be actually a good reason So we'll just leave that as a funny anecdote So uh, from the remarks It says Nodes in the visual tree can be either visual Or visual 3D objects Methods that are specific to a type of visual object are type either visual or visual 3D. However, some methods in the Visual Tree Helper class can accept a dependency object value that represents either type of visual object. WPF supports programmatic access to several different tree structures of objects. Primarily, this is exposed as a visual tree and a logical tree. In some cases, the logical tree is a more useful representation of the elements in a WPF application, but conceptually, the logical tree is implemented at a level beyond the visual class. Unlike the visual tree, the logical tree can represent non-visual data objects such as list item. And for more information, you can look in the documentation. There's a nice little uh, example there in C-sharp of using the visual tree helper to navigate the tree. Awesome. Yeah. Visual tree. Well, that's why it, that, that
2: that's why it's immediate media, because it's the visual tree, not the logical tree. Right. I don't know. Speaking of Visual Studio 2010, yes. we are hosting an install fest of Beta 1.
1: As a matter of fact, we are.
2: Yes. Wednesday, June 10th, 6 o'clock at DevTeach, at the DevTeach conference. We're going to .NET Rocks. Carl and I are going to be there, and we are going to be part of the group of guys who are going to install... The Beta 1 of Studio 2010, if you haven't already done it. Right. We're going to – I just installed it on a,
1: on a Windows 7 virtual machine. And, um, it, you know, when you said we're going to be leading the people in how to install it, I'm thinking press next,
2: <laughs> press next. And next again. Press finish. Thank you very much. Pretty painful. <laughs> but I also think we'll spend some time touring around it. And I'm thinking we'll might get a DNR TV recording out of it. Yeah, that might be interesting. Yeah, it'll be good fun. So uh, and if you haven't heard about DevTeach, where have you been? Really? We're, we're going to be in, in Vancouver the week of June 8th. It runs from the 8th to the 12th. And, uh, you know, another evening session. They do all these special bonus evening sessions mm-hmm. on June 8th. On the Monday, Beth Massey, our friend, yep. is hosting... Uh, the sort of futures of Visual Basic and C Sharp. That ought to be cool. Yeah, lots of fun. Yeah.
1: And uh, devteach.com, for, for those of you who want to sign up and register, it's a great little conference that's grown. Uh, JR has grown this conference over the years, and it, but it's always remained a nice, intimate uh,
2: conference. Absolutely. I mean, the cool thing is we all eat lunch together. Yeah. Uh, so you can, you know, come and eat lunch with Carl and I. We'll be there. Uh, so I'll be doing a couple of sessions. I think you've got one as well, Carl, yeah. in the evening sessions. Uh, the lineup of speakers, Miguel Castro's there, Tim mm-hmm. Huckabee's coming, mm-hmm. uh, Kathleen Dollard, Orin Eenie, Barry Girvin, like uh, David Larrabee, Amanda Locker. Great, great lineup in a nice small show. So these are all folks you'd see normally at a tech ed, you and, you know, 7,000 of your closest friends. And now you're talking about a few hundred and it's June in Vancouver. Let me tell you, you cannot go wrong. June in Vancouver. Yeah. And maybe Richard will give you a tour of
1: his house.
2: Maybe, maybe (laughs) Maybe not. 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 Okay. Maybe not. (laughs) Uh, Richard, you got an email for us? I do indeed. And it's a bit of a jump back. It's, uh, from show 435. We were talking to Don Kiley. Uh, Let me read this email. Hi, Carl and Richard. I'm a little behind on listening to .NET Rocks, but I wanted to comment on Don Kiley's discussion of JavaScript during show 435. He assigned the pain of the client-side JavaScript to two factors. JavaScript wasn't really object-oriented and that implementations vary between browsers. Richard commented that it is really the DOM that varies between browsers, which corrected the implementation point. But being a fan of the JavaScript language and someone who likes different styles of languages, I wanted to clear up some thoughts on whether JavaScript is object-oriented. Often the term object-oriented is used to describe languages like C-sharp, VB.net, Java, etc. Class-oriented would actually be a better description. They have inheritance models, types, and encapsulated state, but methods are really tied to classes. While in JavaScript, methods are tied to objects, allowing for dynamic assignment of methods to an object. All class-like functionality is controlled through the prototype model, which does have a history in other languages. In my opinion, object orientation is actually a better term for JavaScript than it is for languages like C Sharp and Java. Hmm. The prototype method allows for very powerful, dynamic, and expressive code. One only needs to spend some time with the jQuery source to realize how true that is. The cost of that expressive ability is that it requires a shift from the class-oriented mindset, which leads to what I believe is the real cause of JavaScript's reputation. For some reason, developers expect to know JavaScript without taking any time to learn it. Large portions of the community use the language every day, have it in their resume, and have never invested time in it. I know I've heard this point made before by Douglas Crockford and David Flanagan, I forget which, but I see it all the time. Imagine working on database applications and expecting to learn SQL without any effort. This sounds crazy, but many web developers are doing this with JavaScript. They don't have any good JavaScript books and couldn't answer basic questions about the type system or prototype feature of the language. These days, with tools like Firebug and the IE developer toolbar and libraries that deal with DOM inconsistencies, developers have only themselves to blame for struggles in working with JavaScript. I'd go so far as to say it's a fun language to work in. Thanks for the great show. I'm a runner and I love being able to stay up to date with the .NET developments while running in my local park. You guys even got me through the first hour of the Cleveland Marathon this year. Tim Houlihan from Akron, Ohio. Yeah. Now Tim, first, marathons in Cleveland. And second, you love JavaScript. I'm going to send you a mug. Do <laughs> you need to put drugs in it? Is there something <laughs> terribly wrong with you? <laughs> And for those who
1: missed the Doug Crockford show that was show 422 right which we did in February this year. And that and, was a uh, good great show if you uh, want to learn the ins and outs of JavaScript, he's got an excellent book.
2: Yeah, uh, it is the book you ought to own around JavaScript. And Tim, I'm teasing you because I totally agree. We don't put because it's a scripting language, you just presume it's going to be easy. But right. JavaScript is a very intricate language and I think jQuery is proof, proof of the potential of the language and if we take time to learn it, we'll do well with it. Our guests today
1: are Nicholas Gustafsson and Josh Phillips. Nicholas is principal architect of the Parallel Computing Platform at Microsoft and the primary architect of Axum, A-X-U-M, which we'll talk about. Josh Phillips is a program manager on the Parallel Computing Platform. He also works on the parallel extensions to ship in .NET 4.0 and is the program manager of the Axum Project. Welcome, Josh and Nicholas.
4: Thank you. All right.
1: Well, this is a subject that's near and dear to my heart, parallelism. Um, we've had, we've done quite a few shows that ranging from, you know, what's in the framework to best practices to uh, the parallel extensions uh, that okay. we've talked about recently. And of course, this is an old problem as old as computers. Uh, as, as long as there have been computers and computer programming, there have been multiple threads and asynchronous programs and, and parallelism, and it has never been fun, right? <laughs> so, Agreed. so tell us about Axum.
4: Okay, well, um, thank you for for having us today, and and um, we think the Axum as a an experiment, first of all, okay. it's not something that uh, Microsoft has uh, has uh, committed to shipping at this point, but it's a very exciting experiment, I think, and one that has potential of solving a lot of of problems with concurrency and and parallelism. The primary premise is that most of the current models that are offered even, you know, in .NET 4.0 have a lot of safety issues around them, and that as long as you follow the rules for, you know, for accessing shared state and accessing your variables and and heap allocated objects, um, it... Following certain quite restrictive patterns, you're going to be safe, but you have to understand those patterns, you have to understand how to apply them to your algorithm, and you have to understand when to deviate from them, uh, if at all.
1: Give us just a uh, one-sentence description of what this is. Is it a set of guidelines? Is it a language? What is it?
4: It's, It's a language. And the reason that we believe that having a language encoding of these patterns is important is that... When you're trying to restrict what somebody's doing, restrict somebody that, that lives, is used to living in a, the free-for-all that the object-oriented paradigm really is,
3: mm-hmm.
4: um, into something more, uh, restrict them into something safe. One of the best ways of doing that is to define uh, language semantics to do that. To so actually define a language that embodies those restrictive patterns. That's what activists
2: so the first thing that sort of jumps out of my mind is, is this is like v- what Visual Basic 1 was to Windows programming for para, but now for parallel programming. To just give us a safe place to play where we won't mess up and, and, and make a, destroy things.
4: Yeah. Um, that's, that's a very, that's a very flattering parallel, parallel to draw, I think. Um, if, if we can live up to that, that, that's, uh, that's fantastic. Of course, Visual Basic 1.0 came, um, with an integrated library and an integrated tool, and I was very instrumental in making it successful as a GUI programming uh, platform. But I, I do think that you're right that, that the we're addressing some of the same productivity issues. Parallel programming is, is hard, mm-hmm. and GUI programming in the late 80s and early 90s was hard, right? You had to do it in C or C++. Right. It was difficult. It was challenging and not very productive. The same situation we're facing now with parallel programming, and we need some language. Great tools, great framework, but we also need some language to support to help it.
1: Is this a DSL, or you know, is it an M language, or is it something that plugs into Visual Studio? What, 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 uh, what's the nature of it?
5: Um, it, it? It's a. We don't like to call it a DSL, but it's a it's a a special purpose language. Um, that uh, you can you can use to write your whole application in, um, but you probably won't get much done if you're going to do anything significant. You're going to have to interoperate with other languages like C Sharp and uh, Visual Basic. Mm-hmm. But it's a coordination language, really.
4: It, one of the one way of thinking of of this is that there are certain things that are at the a lot of the safety mechanism me- mechanisms in a in a parallel application will be. Needed to be established at the very top level of your application structure. I or just,
1: I, I just got to clarify. Did, did you say you do use this with Visual Studio? This is a Visual Studio .NET language.
4: Yes, yes. Okay. But the idea is that you will establish safety at the very top levels of your application, right? And then you'll have these safe bubbles, in which case, in which you will write most of your actual application code in. A language like C#, which Axum looks a lot like syntactically, mm-hmm. uh, but you can also use, you know, any .NET language. Obviously, Visual Basic .NET or uh, Python, Iron Python or F# or, or whatever you want, because they're all um, all you know .NET languages, and they're they designed. The whole .NET infrastructure is there to support all languages. But the idea is that Axiom you would be using for certain aspects of your application. We call it special purpose we don't like the domain specific language uh, label because there's no those are typically associated with very specific technology domains and axiom is not about that. Uh, parallelism is not a domain in that sense in my opinion. Okay. It's a it's a particular aspect of general purpose programming. Right. And what's also important is we don't,
5: you know, parallelism is very in your face in languages like C# and and VB, right? It's something that you sort of have to think about explicitly. We want to sort of move away from that model where you just um, define components and you let the runtime worry about the, the parallelism for you.
1: So it sounds like when you use uh, Axum, you're designing up front for parallelism, and that is maybe why you're suggesting you do the bulk of your application programming in C Sharp or VBnet and use Axum for the parallel pieces. It, it, I imagine since the .NET language, I imagine it can coexist in you know, as a as a separate component or as separate projects in in a solution.
5: Yeah, correct.
2: Yeah. So we're we really just getting at the idea that certain pieces of our app are going to be parallel. I, I mean, I'm still I still jump back to like the parallel task library, but there and there you were you're quite explicitly saying, okay, here's a piece that I want to do in parallel. Hmm.
5: So when you when you look at your application, you want to look at it in, in certain layers, and the way that we look at it is there's. This upper level, which we talk about is these components that are really just asynchronous agents that um, message to each other and talk to each other, and you get concurrency at that level. And that's, that's more coarse-grained. Um. And then there's also the parallelism, which you get with things like the task parallel library. And we're not saying that those are necessarily mutually exclusive. We'd want to use them together. And Axiom is really about that first piece there, about the con- uh, component-level concurrency.
1: And you use the word agent there, which... Um is a is a, a new word for people who are going to use axiom and the first thing in the programmer's guide that you come up against is that uh, these the sort of entities uh, you you might want to think of them as objects but you call them agents what's the difference really
4: uh, that's a that's a great segue from the abstract into the concrete here mm. uh, we've been talking about these the you know establishing safety but we haven't really talked about what axiom does to establish safety and and okay. the interaction with the task parallel library and the contrast to it is also very interesting in this particular concept. So let's start with TTL and why it's not appropriate as a safe programming model. TPL is extremely useful for, and it's, you know, available in .NET 4. Um, it's extremely useful when you have either an embarrassingly parallel algorithm, in other words, something that trivially is parallelizable and trivially is safe when parallelized. For example, the canonical example You know, the first example you look at typically when you look at um, parallel parallel algorithms is matrix multiplication, where you really have three nested for loops that go over two matrices and multiply them together, and you wind up with something that is very, very easily parallelized. You take the outermost loop and parallelize it. Mm. Why is it so easy to parallelize? Because each iteration of the loop, there's no dependency on previous or, or following iterations of the loop. So everything runs perfectly well in parallel. The data is very separable too. Each each column or row of the of the matrices matrices are independent of each other. So you already have that partitioning there. Now that's an extremely that's an extreme example. Most algorithms are not that easily parallelized and not that free of data dependencies between the pieces that you would parallelize. Right. Um, another extreme is IO driven concurrency where you're really not looking at a parallel algorithm per se, but you're looking at multiple independent computations, all driven by the availability of data coming in from a network or data coming off of disk, where your parallelism has nothing to do with a computation that you're trying to do, but it's really about multiple computations going on at once and over shared data. Now this shared data is the is the basis of almost you know, all evil. <laughs> yes, all evil, exactly. And, and most, most, you know, simple and trivial data parallelism problems are based on the fact that you you're not you don't know what you're doing when you're accessing shared state from concurrent or parallel uh, pieces.
1: Yeah. So you you so you have these agents that are these little autonomous guys that uh, pass messages back and forth to each other, and that's really the only way that they can communicate, isn't it?
4: And and they don't. Yes. And they, so they they cannot communicate with each other through shared state, yeah. through shared data. So what they do is they send messages to each other, that are, and the messages are safe. Now, we eliminate one class of, of problems, which are the data races here. Uh, I, I want to be careful to say that we are not eliminating deadlocks. You can still hmm. deadlock with a message-passing uh, system. Hmm. But we, we can eliminate one class of, of very, very common I, I would say, the most common parallelism uh, problems, which are data races.
1: Race conditions, yeah. It's, it's, it's like you set up a little mini SOA on your desktop, almost.
4: Exactly. That's an extremely good parallel. And in fact, in designing this, the principles that we've, we've started with were the principles of how the web is programmed. Because if mm. you think about the web and what it really is, it's a massively, massively parallel application. Yes, it is. And and yet it's programmed not by rocket scientists, but by everyday um, programmers who are, you know, you know some, many of them are self-taught. Many of them have never seen a, a class, of, taken a class on computer science or parallelism or whatever it may be. And it's remarkably robust. Mm. So a lot of the principles behind the maximum are directly borrowed from that uh, solution space, if you will.
5: The major one being isolation, of course.
1: right. So with the so in your design of um parallelizing tasks that do that that are in your application these these would these agents have access to components that already exist in your application typically or would these agents be um would be subordinate to your components in your application or both
4: it, it depends a little bit we we define two con two main isolation concepts um, we have what we call a domain which is really the if you will the, the component concept that's the thing that draws the boundary around state yeah um, which is typically what components in, in a model does right and the other pieces are the agents and the agents are really the actors within the domain where you know you're the, act, the agent is acting on behalf of other components, if you will, accepting messages and manipulating domain state, whether it's you know actually writing to it or just reading it or doing something with it, sharing it with other act, agents. Um, so the agents are subordinate to the domain, um, and of course there are other you know component models and uh, runtime models that are further. On the outside of, of domains, like for example, operating system processes, mm. uh, we're, we're definitely subordinate to them. Everything, all code on Windows is, except maybe drivers, and we are we have um, also, of course, .NET application domains, which are somewhere in between operating system processes and uh, and uh, axiom domains in in both cost and um, and complexity.
1: I, w- I would imagine that there's a lot of people listening right now thinking to themselves, well, this m- this sounds like I'm going to need to architect a solution from the beginning with axiom in mind. And, you know, if we were just going to retrofit this into uh, an existing architecture, we might as well just use WCF services to isolate parts that need to be parallelized. I mean, what does it is it is it a difficult retrofit or am I right in assuming that you sort of need to uh, first understand what Axum does and then architect a solution using um, using Axum to its full potential?
4: Well, that's one of the things that we need to further explore, and we've you know produced a CTP on uh, on MSDN Dev Labs to help get input from from um, you know developers and and. People outside our little team to help us validate validate this proposition. I think it fundamentally comes down to applications that haven't been designed to take isolation and safety into consideration are going to have to be retrofitted somehow with some technology, and it's not going to be uh, without some cost.
3: Mm. That
4: that's just intrinsic to the to the problem at hand. Yeah. Now, the, the issue is, you know, is, is Axum the le- lowest-cost solution to that, or are there better solutions that, that where the retrofitting is less expensive, if you will? And, of course, it's going to depend on, on what the expense is all about. Is it learning curve? Is it uh, long-term maintenance? Uh, what are, what's part, part of your cost equation there? Um, WCF, of course, is a messaging infrastructure Um, It also supports uh, a a real distributed uh, service-oriented architecture model, if you will. Hmm. Uh, Coupled with a workflow, it it has a very rich semantic model. On the other hand, it's really designed and built for enterprise-scale systems. And part of the value of Axum, I think, is it's scaled to to more fine-grained systems that the same programming model can be used for concurrency inside an application, a single-process application, and in in a distributed world. Now, WCF is a very interesting case also because Axiom works extremely well with WCF. In fact, um, a Axiom domain and Axiom agents will look like WCF services if you um, if you want to run them in a distributed environment. Um, so we are leveraging WCF for parts of our infrastructure and Axum works very well with that infra- with that, with that model too.
1: Um, one of the things that I've I'm seeing here that makes Axum really powerful is this whole workflow idea that you were talking about, um, the messaging process that you can control with a very high-level construct called a pipeline. Tell us a little bit about that.
4: Okay. So so I think uh, there, there are two, uh, two different things here. Workflow, which is really about coordinating um, or, or orchestrating messaging with control flow constructs like loops and conditional statements and uh, code, if you will. And then data flow.
3: Data flow. Yeah, that's And which word. is
4: what pipelines are examples of, uh, where you really... It's not so much about the imperative code, if you will, the statements that, that move the computation along, but that the computation happens as a side effect of data becoming available on some input port. And the data is being moved through the calculations in a much more functional way than with when you're uh, looping over something. For example, if we have a pipeline that forwards an image through a series of stages that you know perform image processing uh, transforms on them, maybe you know, something is resizing it, so maybe something is blurring it, maybe something is sharpening it, you know, there are a number of transformations that you want to have done. Mm. You could do that with a control flow construct that loops forever or you know for some time of course Mm -hmm. and reads an image goes through all the stages of the transform and then writes it out to disk and then moves loops back up and starts all over again that's a very reasonable and very readable way of doing uh, this image transformation but one thing it isn't is is easy to parallelize right because you know loops aren't very parallelizable unless they're for loops uh, and this isn't the case of that now, the other way of doing that is a pipeline where you simply just declare the various stages as, as you know, what we call transforms, which are functions that can run in parallel with each other, and you just push the images through those transforms one by one, and each stage, because the, the, the images in this particular you know, case do not have any shared data. One image is independent from the next image, we can just completely parallelize the, the processing, not just from stage to stage in the, um, in the pipeline where, as you push many images through, but within each stage, you can also parallelize and run the processing of, for example, you can do the, the blurring, let's say, of two images at the same time.
1: And what's interesting is that you the the nodes of the um, uh, the you know the processes the nodes of the pipeline are parallelized, but yet it maintains the order of the pipeline.
4: Yeah. So and that's very critical for algorithms like if you were compressing a file and it's a it's a huge file, you want to not compress the the ten gigabits all at once. You want to take them. And read them maybe uh, ten megabytes at a time, and compress a chunk, and then compress the next chunk. Yeah. If you weren't maintaining order, then you would be uh, in in deep trouble.
2: Right. But is this the common problem of parallel processing is it, there's a point where you sort of split out and do lots of things at once, and then there's a point where it all has to come back together?
4: Yeah. The the, the common fork join pattern, where you you need to understand, you know, where a program is partially ordered and where a program is fully ordered. And you need to have some mechanism to manage that.
1: Use wait handles typically in, in traditional, I say traditional, but in you know in managed code, if you're doing your own sort of asynchronous calls. You'd use wait handles to sort of set those points where a whole bunch of parallel stuff comes to um, a single point.
4: Yes. And and wait handles are fine, and they're highly optimized in the system. I mean, they're, they're expensive. They involve kernel transitions right. and so on and so forth but they're highly optimized in the, op- in the kernel. But from a programming model perspective, weight handles are are less than desirable because they there's no direct semantic association of, of the synchronization con- construct, which is the weight handle, with the thing that you're synchronizing on. Yeah. But, and, and that's one of the issues from a model perspective.
1: Right, and it's very easy for, with Axum just to say you know, just to set up this pipeline, in in like one statement, you are just making essentially a list of uh, of operations or a list of functions, and the ones that are parallelizable get parallelized, and then but they maintain their order. That's really really powerful. Yeah,
5: it, it's just it's a very loosely coupled model, and it's um, it's more expressive, right, rather than than uh, imperative, which is
4: important. One one way of thinking about this is also, and and another distinction. Between the control flow based mechanism and the data flow based mechanism is that typically in the control flow solution you you wind up being quite rigid because you are not building the structure of the of the you're not building the passes of the of the overall computation as a network you're building it as you're writing it as code that is compiled and and not really reconfigurable to any you know, great extent, whereas the networks are runtime constructs and you can, you know, you can say, this is the network that I want to have running for a certain amount of time, and then I'm going to add more stages or I'm going to you know, have more than one network or I'm going to take it away and, and mm-hmm. do something else instead.
1: I was thinking, how does it compare to f And well, f is parallel by nature just because of how functions work, um, this seems to be a lot higher level. Am I right?
4: Um, I I think it's it's not quite um, that simple. Okay. F Sharp is a functional language. Um, it's also an imperative language. F Sharp I think is a is a beautiful expression or a beautiful compromise between the object oriented you know premise of .NET and the the useful and, and very powerful functional programming paradigm. But um, I think it's going a little bit far to say that that F-Sharp is, is parallel, um, sort of out of the box.
5: The functional part
4: definitely helps
5: make parallelization easier. The
4: functional subset of F-Sharp makes parallelization a whole lot easier. Mm-hmm. Um, but F-Sharp suffers from the same issue that any other .NET language does, which is that as soon as you step outside of the functional subset and start writing object-oriented code, you are back into, you know, the unsafety of .NET. F# doesn't have the concept of domains and agents that establish the safe, um, the safe haven, if you will.
1: Right. But then again, you know, we've we've talked to some F# people who, you know, when we when we pose the question, would you consider writing line of business applications completely in F-sharp, you know, sometimes the answer is, well, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes the yeah. answer that sometimes that's the answer that F-sharp people say. I'm not sure that I believe it, but, uh, no, but I- you're clearly, you're clearly, you came right out at the beginning of this conversation and said, you probably don't want to write your entire application, you know, with Axum, You want to use the language, the object oriented language of your choice for, for what it's best for, and then do the right. parallelizable bits with. with right, we scene.
5: didn't we didn't re- want to reinvent the wheel, and that's part of the, the reason is we wanted to make it as simple as possible and make the language as small as possible. And in fact, we've kind of gone with the, the kitchen sink method and, and thrown everything in at the beginning. And we're using this um, dev labs release to determine what we can actually pull out. I see. Um, and what makes it less complicated. Um, but for example, like in Axiom, you can't actually define a, a type. Um, So you'll have to use something like C-sharp or VB or some other um, .NET language to do so.
1: This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who bring you this message. One of the drawbacks of using third-party tools is that you have to deal with numerous vendors. So say goodbye to consistent quality and service level. Fortunately, that's not always the case. Our friends at Telerik, for example, are a true one-stop shop for .NET. They recently rolled out their Q1 release, which is just packed with good stuff. Start with Silverlight, an incredible grid, chart, editor, and everything else. A whole suite. A 3D chart. Yes, 3D in Silverlight is coming soon as well. The traditionally strong ASP.NET Ajax suite got even cooler. New controls, Visual Studio extensions for quick project kickstarts, new examples and skins, you name it. And how about web testing? Yep. Telerik is now offering a powerful solution for automated testing of modern Ajax applications. It's called Web UI Test Studio and is developed in partnership with Art of Test. Then comes reporting, WPF, WinForms, but I'm running out of time. So just go to www.telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K.com and be amazed. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So you really are creating black boxes.
4: I, that depends on what you mean by by that.
1: Well, That's I mean, open. agents, you wouldn't... Would you call an agent and pass an object to it?
4: No, it would send a message to it.
1: Yeah, you, well, you'd send a message to it, but that message would it, wouldn't it would include a serializable object that then... Or would it? Would you Do you have the ideas of entities, of, of data entities?
4: So we have this, these things called... Well, first of all, you can send any... Uh, Any uh, .NET type that is a value type, a a real value type, you can send as a message. The other thing we have is this thing called a schema, which is a, again, a constraint on .NET. And and again, this is why we're using language to say there are certain types that would be safe to be, be used in messages. They're either because they're immutable, in other words, they can't be changed, there's no possibility of data races over something that doesn't change, um, and or they're they're copyable, and schemas are 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 copied when you send them, and they're, they're they're deeply cloned, and they're cloned using compiler-generated code. We generate the code for clones for two reasons. One is because we want to get it right. If you ju- if we just allowed you to you know implement I Uh, there's no guarantee that that it's actually happening correctly, either uh, object graph preservation or, you know, you could do something dangerous. So we're doing it because we want it done done right. The other reason we're doing the compiler-generated clone is that it's a lot, lot faster than reflection-based clones. So um, reflection-based cloning is is about 100 times slower than than what we can do with compiler-generated clones. So it's quite efficient. It's Far from ideal, mm-hmm. but uh, it's it's uh, it's comparably speaking quite quite efficient. Okay. Now, if we had immutable types to send instead, we can be you know even even more efficient. Right. We've been talking a lot about the message passing
5: aspect, um, but there are times when it's just not feasible from a performance perspective to pass everything as a message. So, if you want two components to concurrently work on some data, um, you know, you have to copy the message over, and if this is something like an image or a bitmap, something that's huge, there's obviously a, a, a performance limitation there. So we also have the ability within domains to define agents as reader or writer and operate on the data that's sort of enclosed inside of a domain. Hmm. Um, and just like you would with a reader-writer reader, lock, the, the runtime knows, okay, if I'm a reader agent, um, I can run multiple reader agents at the same time, but if I'm a writer agent, that has to run mutually,
4: mutually exclusively.
1: Hmm.
4: So you get a nice kind of blend there.
1: Yeah, it's interesting.
4: And we have we have a method of annotating class libraries, and this is why when I can say that with F-sharp, we don't have a safe bubble, and then as soon as we step out into .NET, it's dangerous, just like with C-sharp or VB.NET. Hmm. Um, with with Axum, we have a way of annotating class libraries that are Written in another, another language, so that we can understand the side effects that those class libraries have. And the reader-writer model that we use for agents is sufficient to be safe as long as we know what the things we're calling do. They don't have to. We, we don't have to restrict you from calling them necessarily. We just need to know what they do, and what they do to what, right? Are, what are they doing to the, this parameter? What are they doing to the parameters that you pass um, into a function, and so on and so forth? If we know that, we can. Take the right locks, if you will, and we do it. But we do it transparently. The user doesn't get involved, except declaring the agent as either a reader or a writer. And if you declare, it, you know, the wrong, the wrong way, the compiler will let you know.
1: What's interesting, what, what I'm thinking of right now is a sort of a, and how you handle this gotcha, which is most of the time when you're parallelizing something, a a, a big part of the reason is because the data set is so big. And here you're requiring, let's say we have an image file, right, to use your um, uh, example, that's really enormous and you want to do some processing on it. Before we can even start, we have to serialize this thing and, and get it to you in a message. Yeah. That, and that adds overhead. So, yeah.
4: So that's why for, for something like that, that's exactly, I think, what Josh was pointing to. Is it's too big to be messaged. And yeah. what you want to do then is you want to build... So, so we don't actually copy it. When you're just messaging within a domain, we're not copying anything. We're using the reader-writer model for safety. It's between domains that we make copies. And so we're not trying to be a pure message message-passing model. We're trying to strike a balance between shared memory and message-passing and leverage both to create something that's safe. Okay. And can be, but also something where you can distribute your application if you find that the, you know, a local machine cannot handle the scale that you're needing.
1: So let, let me just clarify how this would look. Um, I, I have my application, which has a image in it somehow. Maybe it's a .dotnet image or some data graph or something like that. And I have, um, as a component of my application, I've got an Axum component, um, uh, an agent, and I want I'll, if I I want this thing to be paralyzed but I'm I, I can't move on with my application. you know it's like please wait while we sharpen your image that kind of thing right <laughs> So I put a I put a reader lock on my data and you you, you can access it from Axum
4: Well it's not that you put a lock on your data what you what you do is you say who needs to see this data and and you call You call the boundary around your data a domain, and then you decide what are the operations that need to happen independently on the data. Um, There may be some operations that are write operations. There are some operations that are read operations.
1: And I would do this in C Sharp.
4: Now, you would decide, you would draw this structure in in Axum, and you would call those operations reader agents and writer agents, and you would declare them as such. You would say... You know, this only needs read access to it. This needs write access to it, and and then you would write your code right there.
1: But wait a minute. Well, what if my image exists in my application, not in Axum, and I want it to be operated on in Axum? How do I how do I manage that? Because you don't understand types. How do you access it?
4: We understand types. We just don't. We Axum doesn't. Define a way of creating new types.
3: Oh, I see. But we,
4: we fully understand types. I see. It is we're, we're, you know fully .NET aware um, language, and we we couldn't be that without understanding types. So what we call ourselves is object aware, mm. but not an object oriented language. Okay. And it's because of exactly this, we're not actually allowing you to define new types.
1: Okay. All right. Well, then, so you so you have access to my object then in Axum. Okay, well, that's yeah. I guess that's what I was sort of trying to
4: and clarify. and it, the code that you wrote in C Sharp. We also can understand what your C Sharp code with these annotations that we can generate um, that we can generate on the side without having to touch your code. Your code can be binary, binary delivered. Uh, we can understand what your code does and the side effects your code has on that image, so mm-hmm. that we know what's safe to call in your code from a reader or a writer context.
1: I see. Anna, do I have to do anything in particular in my code? If uh, Do I just have to make sure, do I have to put a, a lock around any code that accesses that image? Or
4: Not have- from the Axiom perspective. If, if you introduce parallelism in your own code without using the Axiom primitives for it, yeah. then yes, yep. right? But that's that's outside our knowledge.
1: And that's, that's, why, you, that's why you're that's why using right. Axiom in the first place, to get around yeah, that.
4: Correct, yeah. exactly. So yeah. the one constraint that Axiom does place on your code is that if you use static variables and you put, let's say you store the a reference to that image in a, in a static variable, that is inherently unsafe. Interesting. Right? And it's because anybody can have access to that from any kind of thread. Right. And so that's just considered unsafe code from an action perspective.
3: And it's
1: interesting because it's usually the other way around in managed code. Static methods tend to be safer than unstatic methods. Or static members. Uh, okay. Isn't that true?
4: I'm not so sure.
1: Well, I know I remember when I'm I know when I'm looking in the documentation about about objects that are thread safe and ones that aren't, usually when they're when they're defined as static, then they are thread safe, but well a lot of them are. When they're static they're thread safe but, and when they're uh, not thread
4: static. So well, I can I, I can speculate why somebody would why you would see that perhaps in some okay. documentation, but this, this is speculation. Um, if you define statics, you have to be aware that and and you put them in an API, you have to be very very careful. Right. You'd better make sure that they are thread safe. Okay. Whereas with instance variables, that's not necessarily. You have more control over where they're reachable from, and so making them explicitly thread safe is not so uh, perhaps important in all situations. But again, this is speculation. I, I don't actually know this to be the case for these APIs, but I'm not even sure which ones you're talking about. But I would speculate that that could be part of what you're seeing there. Because statics, you have no control over who gets to them. Anywhere right. in the product you can yeah. right And, and they're, they're just very, very unsafe from a parallelism perspective.
3: Mm.
2: Well, the main thing being, you, you can't protect it from anybody else accessing it, and you know you don't know what's going to happen with it.
4: Right. Whereas with you know some some instance instance uh, variables, you have access, you can control who you give the object graph to. Right. Right. I mean, you could you could be doing that very very. Um, it's up to you to be safe or not there, right? But with static, right. you really can't control anything. Statics
5: have no isolation. So
2: I'm really getting my head around this idea of the sort of brownfield problem of I have an existing app, I, I'm having performance problems, which I think is the usual reason people are trying to turn to parallelism is that they've got performance problems in an existing app and they're trying to see how they can use Axum to sort of strap it. It's, it's almost a very aspect-oriented approach to being able to kind of mark up pieces of code and say, here you can and here you can't.
4: I think that if you're, if you're just looking at at retrofitting existing code, um, and you believe that you have some issues with parallel, you know, where you could, some algorithms where you could take care, take uh, advantage of parallelism, there are many solutions. I don't think that Axiom is the first one that you would try.
3: Right.
4: I think something like TPL or, uh, you know, parallel link. Right. Are, are more of the, this is the first thing I should try, kind of,
5: situation. But again, those are places you'll need to be very careful, right? We're sort of giving you sharp knives. And
4: and they're also going to be limited, because they're they're sort of point solutions, if you will. You have a particular algorithm that you think can be parallelized, and you think it's a critical path in your application, and you can be extremely successful in getting speed up in those areas. Axum is a much broader, if you will, it's a solution that has a broader impact on your application, and it's more suited for situations where they're either a new component that you're writing or you are willing to restructure your application because you realize that unless I go through the effort of restructuring it, I'm never going to be able to scale it to um, the level that I need to be competitive.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can imagine there's a lot of projects out there that you know, where some hotshot programmer goes, yeah, I love multi-threaded programming. Let me do this. And then they, they get in there and now you've got goo littered all over your application and all over your objects to do the parallel stuff. And then finally, that comes to that point where you just give up.
5: Yeah. It, what, one other place that you know, you might actually consider retrofitting as the asynchronous I.O. point. That's, that's, that's what we found sometimes is you, let's say you have a, you know, a, you want to update the UI and the way that you're doing it now for multiple threads is, is kind of difficult because the UI usually wants one thread to do it right. So you can sort of sure. wrap that in an agent that, that manages the UI and you can have another agent that manages the network or, or you know, file on, on the disk. Um, and that isn't so difficult to retrofit.
1: And for that matter, though, you could use the background worker process um, component to do sure. the same thing. Yeah, I think where where Axum is really shining is where you have these these uh, steps, and each step needs to be parallelized, but they need to happen in a sequence, and and you don't really care about how many threads it takes.
4: But it's I think it's important to to keep in mind that patterns. There, there are many different levels of patterns, right? We have mm. we have application patterns, we have design patterns, we have code patterns, and it's very, very often very tempting to say, "Well, I'm going to go in fix and fix things at the lowest level I can because it's the lowest cost, mm. right? If I have to, if I have to change my code patterns, that's a local, that's a tactical fix that I can make, mm. and." It all depends. Whereas a design pattern, or even even more so, an application pattern, where I'm really structuring my app, I decide to go software plus services versus you know local software versus web services. Uh, those types of application patterns are very very big decisions to be making, mm. and design patterns fall somewhere in between. But but you cannot solve strategic issues with tactical sol- tactical tools. Yeah. Right. And so it all depends on what your ambition is and what your what the sort of competitive threat is against you, it, there's no single answer for what is right to do in a particular, you know, case. The axiom is about design patterns. It's about isolation. It's, yes, pipelining is, is you know, one of the code patterns that we support, and it's very important for parallelism at, at the lower level, but you also have to see axiom as a tool for certain design patterns, and that, you isolation is fundamentally not something that is, is built into most applications that have been built for the single uh, threaded world right and and I don't know of a solution to to parallelism that doesn't doesn't require some thinking about what the new world really is mm. and the new realities that we're gonna have to live with are and but I'm pretty pretty certain that there are no Cheap,
1: easy fixes. Yeah, I, I, I got to imagine that it takes a whole new architectural mindset once you know what Axum does mm-hmm. to yes. to to really to really figure it out. And as I said before, it probably helps if you've designed a um, a service oriented architecture because yes. that sort of helps you compartmentalize and separate.
4: Yeah, yeah, and we're quite explicit about the the sort of web services and how the web is programmed in general as a as a great source of inspiration for the Axon model in the first place. Yeah. And it's been a very successful model. That's one of the reasons that we're really, you know, strong believers in this.
5: And again the great thing about it is you're never actually explicitly thinking about concurrency. That's happening for you for free.
2: Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and therein lies the point, right? Like, what, what have we been doing all this time with these different layers of code, but abstracting away, needing to know those things? We don't know the memory location of of the keyboard anymore, or much less the video. Like, all that stuff's abstracted out That's from right. us. I don't want to know. Yeah,
5: exactly. And spend, spend more time on your business problem than the concurrency problem. Yeah, yeah. you're you're better off not knowing.
2: Yeah,
4: um,
1: yep. ignorance is bliss, <laughs> folks. <laughs> So, you mentioned that deadlocks can happen. I imagine that if you've got these agents out there and you have processes within these agents and, uh, action is predicated upon the receipt of a message, that a deadlock could occur when both, when, when say, let's say two agents are waiting for a message from each other.
4: Yep. That's uh, that it's very, it's very easy to construct a, uh, you know, a case and, and you hit the, Nail on the on the head right there, you know, two agents that don't agree on what the protocol is between them uh, can easily dead, deadlock. Right. You know, and and it gets even more interesting when you have three agents that are communicating with each other. Ew. Or four or whatever, right? Yeah. And so so it's and they it could be you know live locks also and and. Locking up is not a solution that we necessarily address
3: here. No, that's
1: an application domain. That's uh, you, you really have to decide what the protocol is, and you have to implement it and stick to it. I, I like to make the uh, um, the analogy of you know calling the calling a telephone operator for information and ordering a cheeseburger or a drive through. You know, because when you do both of those, there's a, a an you know a protocol that's sort of Understood, you know. You, you yeah. call it what city, please, and then you say, and you know, I'd like a quarter pounder with cheese, you know, and they say, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
4: uh, "Excuse me." Yeah, exactly. Now, or another one is it, it, to uh, to uh, to uh, go with the uh, the Burger King uh, Burger King analogy there too is like just you know just with one party, not just even misunderstanding who you're talking to. This is like insisting on, on uh, paying before you're ordering, or the for the <laughs> The, the cashier to insist that you pay before you you know tell her what you're going to uh, have. That's right.
1: What would you like? How much is it?
3: <laughs> <laughs> um,
4: but, but what Axum does is actually uh, we, we do make it possible to, for you to declare on the communication channels between agents what the protocol is. Yeah. And while it's not removing the possibility of deadlocks, that, that still remains there we're certainly making it easier to understand and, and document and enforce at runtime what the expected uh, conversation is like. Mm. So there's a formalism in that, in the, in the protocol on, on these communication channels that we introduced explicitly for this. Um, because it's much easier to handle a, an error in the, in the exchange when it's close to the source. So if I'm sending you the wrong message, it would be better if I was just prevented from sending it to you than for me to have it get over to you. You figure out that I really didn't know what I was talking about when I sent it and I'm really confused about something. Sending a message back telling me that I made this mistake and my trying to fi- figure out when it was that I made the mistake and what, what are you talking about in the first place. This is like in posting instructions in the drive through line, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so, if, uh, so if, if I get the error, if you tell me about the things that I did wrong when I'm ordering my cheeseburger rather than at the, you know, cache window, um, it's easier to correct it, and it's cheaper to correct it right then and there.
3: Right. We try
4: to, cor- to make the protocols explicit. Now, this is optional. You don't have to, to use protocols. They can be quite complex, complicated to, to devise. But they're there and they're supported if you, uh, do go th- to the trouble of defining them.
1: Um, are agents completely autonomous within a domain? I mean, you, at the top level, I like to think of a domain as a namespace maybe and, and agents as different, uh, entities within that namespace. But with, within a domain, if you've got two agents, can they, can, are they completely isolated from each other?
5: Again, it depends on how you um, annotate them. So you can, anno- you can either not choose to annotate an agent. Um, you can annotate one as a reader or one as a writer. Dang. If you don't annotate them, they're no-access, right? And that means they can't actually touch any of the variables in the domain state unless they're immutable. Um, and then that means you know any no-access agent can run at any time, all the time. Right
1: and um, is a just to be clarif just to clarify is a reader something that exposes or that can be read from or read to like it like which direction does it go is reading reading into or reading out of the agent
5: oh sorry reading into reading domain state okay and
4: writing is writing to domain state I see yeah so the domain state is is what is shared between agents. And the declarative, declaration of either no access or reader or writer is in relation to the domain state that shared state.
3: Uh, I see.
4: You can have state that's private to each agent, and and that of course you know is not um, is not shared.
1: So it's almost yeah, it's almost like the domain is an object, and the 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 domain state are you know module level or variables or class level variables if the domain is a class. Yeah. And you
5: see how that gives us multiple levels of concurrency, right? There's concurrency in between domains, no matter what the um, the modifiers on the agents are. And then there's also concurrency within a domain, depending on what the um, modifiers are.
1: And is it just built in and inherent that those domain state uh, entities or variables or whatever you're calling them, um, they're thread safe?
4: Uh, yeah.
1: Oh. Wow, that's great. So that's a huge difference from managed code, isn't it?
4: But, but well, let me just mention that Axum is a managed code language. But what we do, again, it comes back to these annotations. Yes. Variables in and of themselves are, are containers, right? Mm. So they're thread-safe because of the reader-writer model. Now, what's oh, interesting is what happens when you call methods on those on references that are kept in domain state. And that's where the annotations of class libraries come in.
3: Mm. Right,
4: where we need to understand what if I'm calling a function foo on an object that I have to have a reference to, I need to understand what foo does to the this parameter. Are you writing? Are you reading? Or are you ignoring it all the way down the chain? Right.
1: And on top of all this, you have channels too, right? Which how does that work? Is a channel just an abstraction of? you know, you, a, re- a reader can read on one channel but not on another channel or an inter- vice versa for a writer?
5: So we talked about channels a little bit. The, you can view a channel as really as an interface to an agent what a, like in C Sharp as an interface is to a class, hmm. channels are to an agent, right? Okay. Um, and that's where you define sort of what data can be t- um, talked about and how you can talk about it and what order you can talk about it. Oh, I see. And it's also, that, that's that formal... Protocol specification that we we're talking about, and that
4: makes also for a loosely coupled system. Okay. So, so one of the differences between this actor-based model that Axum uh, follows and an object-oriented is that you don't really have an idea of whom it is that you're talking to. You're you're sending all you're doing is you're communicating with a channel endpoint. Hmm. So one one end of the channel, and the other endpoint could be in your process. It could be on your machine and in a different process, or it could be halfway across the world.
5: Hmm. And it can and, do certain things to the data in totally different ways,
4: right? So, so and and so channels. Really, you can think of channels as just queues. I see. Uh, they're not really active in the sense of accessing domain state or reading or writing anything. They're just uh, communication conduits, if you will, between uh, different agents. I see just could be in the same domain but the channels themselves really have no knowledge of domain state
1: is this sort of analogous to uh, events and subscription
4: uh, I wouldn't say analogous but but it's you know it's similar I guess
1: mm. I mean guess if you think about it you raise an event you don't really know who's listening to it
4: that's right so, so events are specifically a pub sub it follows the pub sub pattern right because anybody could register to it um, channels are loosely coupled in that way mm-hmm but it's not a pub-sub model per se. Right. You can you can turn it into a pub-sub model, but it isn't one. Um, events, you know, channels are, are much more loosely coupled than events in that events are raised within the process, mm. within the address space, whereas channels can be used across processes and across machines.
1: And can you can you have uh, two? Let's see. I would say readers, right? Can you have two reader agents? Uh, as uh, getting the same data from the same channel. Yes. You can. Yes.
4: So what? So they have to share the channel somehow. So they need to, right. you know, share the channel in, in domain state. Uh, but what what we do is we count uh, a receive operation counts as a read because logically it is, and a send operation uh, we count as a write because logically it is. Hmm. And so we uh, take care of it through just sort of. Those semantics.
1: So let's say you wanted to sharpen an image and recolor it, and those are happening in two different agents. They could happen simultaneously.
4: Yeah, although you know, in that particular example, you'd probably want to do them in sequence. In
1: sequence, right? And each one of them would be parallelized, but not both together.
4: Right. I don't know about sharpening. I don't think that's true for sharpening. But there are certain certain uh, image. Image transforms where it's a pixel by pixel thing. Right. And you can block them. You can just divide a picture up into blocks hmm. and individually uh, do the transformation on the blocks.
3: Oh, that's cool. But
4: other algorithms require neighbor information for, for yeah. processing, and I think sharpening is one of those. Um, in which case, blocking is much harder.
1: Yep. Yeah. Wow, this is good stuff. Um, where can we go get it?
5: You want to go on to uh, msdn.com slash devlabs. And then from there, you can find the Axiom link.
1: Did this start in, uh, out as a Microsoft research project?
4: Uh, no, it's what we call an incubation project, which is somewhere between research and, um, research and product development, if you will. Uh, we're not trying to advance the state of the art, per se, mm-hmm. um, which is what re- would be research, and, and yet we're not quite ready to commit to shipping this as a, as a supported product. What that means is that, with a, you know, we're pretty sure that we have a good solution on the way, but we haven't finalized it, and we're not sure that it's uh, a perfect solution.
5: So to help you understand the difference, in research, they can sort of throw away the .NET model and all of the BCL and not have to worry about it. But over here in the product side, we have to really think about, the, you know, the .NET framework and how we can use it, utilize it to actually do practical things. So, Okay. That's part
4: of what X meant. It constrains us a little bit, but it also allows us to, um, to uh, be a little bit closer to practical problems. I'm not saying that MSR and, and research isn't solving practical problems. They are, but they have uh, so many more degrees of freedom than uh, we have as an incubation project that they can, uh, they can assume um, a lot of things that we can. Mm. For, example, for example, this question of, you know, how do I retrofit? you know and that's a much more pregnant issue for us in in a product division than you know in research where you don't necessarily have to constrain yourself to right uh, to things where you can retrofit you can say this is the best ultimate solution and uh and be much more freer in your thinking
1: nicholas josh thank you very much for sharing this with us this is great stuff and uh, i hope we've uh, I hope you and I hope we have all uh, sort of shed a little light on what this does. Hey,
5: thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks.
1: thanks for your great work. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. <laughs> .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions, providing professional audio